Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Coming to you for one last time this week from me, Patrick Maguire. Yes, Matt Chorley will be back on Monday, but... Before then, we've got a fantastic podcast for you today. I'm asking what the future holds for satire on TV. Mock the Week is off the air, leaving Have I Got News for You as the sole survivor. Is political satire on TV dead? We'll be asking that question and getting the answers from some top comedians in just a minute. But first, it's time for our columnist panel. The Columnists with Knight at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Yes, it's a Friday, which means it's time for our most fun pairing of columnists. Don't tell the rest of them. It's India Knight and James Marriott. Right, let's get straight into it, shall we? Uh, The big political story today, nurses could be back on the picket lines within a month. The Times has learned they're set to reject the government's pay pay offer. Uh, If members do reject that offer, it included a 5% pay rise this year, Uh, union leaders are expected to continue strike action to get further concessions. What I've been struck by, uh, India, is, you know, when we compare the strike action by nurses to strike action in other industries, there's a huge amount of sympathy, public sympathy, and this is borne out Mm. by polling for the nurses. Unsurprisingly, Mm. lots of people know nurses. My mum was a nurse. My sister is training to be uh, a nurse. Um, You know, people, it's a caring profession. So people think, oh, well, the the nurses are on strike. It must be bad. But do you think rejecting a, a pay offer might put their good stock of goodwill with the public at risk? It's a really good question. I I, I don't think so. I don't think so, but I only a teeny-weeny bit don't think so. Mm. Um, I think that the nurses ab- above, uh, above and beyond anybody else has the most sympathy. Um, but I know what you mean about sympathy, you know, dwindling. I don't feel like it has dwindled so far. I don't feel like it would dwindle dwindle if they dwindle is a good word. Uh, it really is. They, yeah. <laughs> I don't feel it would dwindle if they went on strike again. But I think it might ultimately erode a little bit. I mean, what's interesting about the story is it's the RCN, the Royal College of Nurses. Um, who are uh, pushing for to, to, to turn the deal down. And Unison, I know, seem quite keen on it. Now, Unison represent a lot of people who are uh, very modestly paid indeed, mm. arguably the kind of... Uh, people in the care sector. And... Yeah, yeah. And they, they are in favour of accepting the deal. So, I don't know, that sort of... that The idea that the RCN might kind of sweep over all of that because of its own demands is not terribly attractive. But no, I think they've still got a stock of public, they've got public goodwill in the bag still for now and for the foreseeable future. I think, you know, yeah, I mean, they're talking about striking in the autumn, aren't they? I think everybody feels like everything is broken. Mm. Everything is so broken. And I think the public mood is very much for Sunak to fix it, you know, 
whatever it takes, however he does it, and for people to communicate. I mean, I remember months ago now when all of this started, I remember, remember uh, Matt saying that people seem, the government seem to have forgotten how strikes work. You know, people go on strike because they're very aggrieved. You, the government, start negotiating with them. And all of this seems to be taking, I don't know, an, an incredibly long time. Incredibly long time. And I think people are fed up. But I think their sympathy is still on the side of the nurses, just. What do you think, James? Yeah, I think the point India makes that the public mood is behind the nurses is the, is the important one. I think, you know, all times have their kind of overriding political narrative and it helps to be in tune with it. I think the narrative, the political narrative of our own times is cost of living crisis, everybody's struggling, you know, people are finding it hard to get by, plus I think residual sympathy for, um, a special sympathy for nurses and doctors from the pandemic. And I think the political winds are behind them. And the fact that, you know, even junior doctors, I think, have still got, you know, more than 50% of public support is indicative of, you know, where where that mood is. And I, I think it's going to carry them on. Yeah, it's really interesting that even junior doctors who many people would say, well, people are less likely to sympathise with doctors than nurses because they are, in the minds of the public at least, obviously there's a huge amount of debate over uh, the small print of exactly what a junior doctor is paid. That's the very point of the strike. Most people would instinctively think, well, doctors are well paid anyway. But it's really interesting, as you say, that the polling suggests that a majority of people are behind them too. Um, James, let's talk about your column. Um, Given that I think we have all agreed there that living in Britain right now isn't a a basket of laughs. Uh, Your column this week was about seeking solace elsewhere, living life in the virtual world. Yeah, um, I remember a few years ago watching... um an incredibly terrible film, a Steven Spielberg film called Ready Player One, which is about uh, a load of people who live in a kind of horrible dystopian future where nothing works, everything's broken. Um, and they basically escape this awful place that they live in by putting on virtual reality headsets and living basically in a kind of digital realm. And the point I was making in my column was, you know, are we further along the road to having, you know, to abandoning reality and living in a virtual world than we perhaps might realise? Um There are a few things behind this. I mean, one of the most interesting things is um, a recent set of of statistics from America that have found that a significant proportion of um, the male male workforce in America, uh, of young men, are working, are more economically inactive than they should be because they're simply playing video games. And it's this weird anomaly um, in the statistics that they're healthy, they're educated, they should be in the workforce, but they literally just prefer video games uh, to reality. And I think that's a kind of theme that you can that you can spot across society. That in all kinds of ways in which we find ourselves preferring the digital world to the virtual world, and we're a little closer to that kind of Steven Spielberg dystopia than we perhaps have yet realised. Now, sort of pointing out, you know, are we closer? Are we closer to there than we think we are? Um, do you live relentlessly in the real world, India, or do you find yourself uh, slipping into uh, into the digital realm a little bit too often? No, I live very deliberately, relentlessly in the real world. I used to live a lot in the well, not the, in um, the digital world, specifically Twitter, which mm. I'm no longer used now. Um, and um, I find all of this stuff really, really scary. I mean, I can understand the appeal. You know, it's to do with it's to do with wanting to find your tribe and wanting to be. Um, agreed with all the time so it's very easy to perform opinions or to perform decisions or to perform quandaries or to perform whatever on an online platform where 
more often than not, you find like-minded people and you have their support and they like your stuff and they encourage you and it's all really great. But it has literally no bearing on the real world or on how the real world exists or the sorts of opinions people have in the real world, which are usually far more subtle and nuanced. Or, you know, so I find it really... um I find it really alarming, actually, but but it's much too late. The floodgates opened many years ago, and um, you, it's much too late to shut them. So I don't know what happens. I think you know, I, I don't know. It's not good. It's not good. It doesn't come to a good conclusion. I don't think. James, I learned a long time ago not to be alarmed on the frequent occasions you disappear completely from Twitter. You know, I think the first couple of times that happened, I sent you. Sorry, I'm now I'm now almost advertising my my close personal friendship with James Marriott on the on on the air. Yes, I text Everyone's James. Marriott. Up to. Yeah, exactly. You know, every, uh, yes, I I do have James Marriott's phone number, and I do occasionally <laughs> see him socially, not as often as I like. But anyway, uh, you know, I learned a long time ago that you occasionally just drop off Twitter and opt out entirely. You know, do you find that's good for your uh, for your mental health and sense of well being when you switch off and presumably spend a lot of time in in bed with a massive. Uh, with a massive uh, first edition of something uh, obscure. Yes, I, I'm relieved that you arrived at the word first edition there. Yeah, yeah um, go on. <laughs> I was wondering where that sentence was going. <laughs> um, yes, uh, so I mean, I've been hounded off Twitter before and just found it too miserable to be on. But I, I think the distinction uh, India makes between, you know, reality being a separate thing from the internet is an, is an important one. And I think on the internet, it might seem like just picking up a book or watching a film, but I think it's not an entertainment quite like that. I think we are sort of acting out you know, everyone has a persona online. And when you've constructed a persona and everyone else has constructed a persona, suddenly you're in a thing that isn't quite the real world. And if you spend, you know, as it's very easy to do hours a day on your phone, you're kind of suddenly becoming a little bit detached from reality in a way that's quite alarming. And I just kind of think every so often, um, yeah, just try and stay off it and live in, live in the real world. The real world of books, which is, of course, very close to reality, maybe. Um, for me. <laughs> As uh, as more sorry, go on in here. Go on in here. I think what I think what's difficult is that all of this stuff ends up affecting your sense of self. So you think you are a particular kind of person because of your activity online, but in fact you're not that kind of person. It's it's your that's certainly an aspect of your personality. But I think I think it can sort of take over, and I think people feel it makes people feel quite lot quite lost and kind of Mm. adrift and unmoored when they are actually in the real world, which after all, you know exists and we all have to be in it and function in it at least at least for a little a, a little, a little bit, bit of time. longer yeah exactly yeah. exactly and as you say james as the smiths once sang there's more to life than books you know but not much more now how many tories does it take to fix a pothole well the prime minister might know a thing or two about that two weeks ago he posed for a photo in darlington but by wednesday this week it still hadn't been filled jack elson is a political correspondent for the sun who's been following this story frankly too closely so what's the latest on this uh, infamous pothole. Has it been filled in? Yes, it has been filled in, finally. Two weeks after um, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, visited it with um, the local MP, uh, the regional mayor, and the leader of the local council. Uh, it has finally been filled in. The tarmac ha- has gone in there, and um, drivers on Elmore Road in Darlington can now um, motor along without any bumps. What happened, exactly? Because the Prime Minister visited and then there was a bit of back and forth on twitter wasn't there yesterday where i think labor accused the the prime minister of having failed in his promise to fill that specific pothole 
and it turned out that it was a false accusation. They were taking his name in vain. Well, I mean, completely. I mean, like two weeks ago, the prime minister went up there in one of his sort of photo ops and he was in this announcement about how uh, companies are going to face crackdowns, utilities companies, if they leave the road in, you know, a dire state after after doing their repair works. And, uh, and two weeks later, it still hadn't been filled. We were contacted on Wednesday on behalf of disgruntled locals um, and then um, you know, put it to the council um, that night. And they said, oh, yes, you know, it is going to be fixed now later this week. Um, and, um, and now finally, yeah, it's, it's happened. Well, James and India, we were just talking about the country uh, not working. And James, this would sort of vindicate your theory that actually for mo- most people's experience of the British state at the minute is just sort of low-level incompetence. You know, people would be justified in thinking people can't even get the basics right when it takes a a call from a national newspaper uh, and a visit from the Prime Minister to get a a, a suburban pothole fixed. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there were 300,000 fewer potholes were fixed last year than the the year before, which certainly is kind of indicative of what feels like the direction of travel of the country at the moment. There's a very good Hugo Rifkin column a couple of weeks ago where he pointed out that you know, the pothole thing is really symbolic of our current politics. This isn't an age of, you know, grand visions, big plans, you know, what they call inverted commas, big ideas, politics. This is an age of please just fix some stuff. Please make the country work smoothly. Please make it okay to get a train, to have a hospital appointment, to drive down a road without your tyre popping and falling into a pothole. And yeah, I think the pothole thing is important in its own right, but also very interesting as a kind of symbol of British politics in 2023. How are your local roads, India? Are they uh, smooth or... To- they're, a lot, they're a lot better than they used to be. Um, I spend um, a lot of time emailing the council about potholes. We live on a lane um, near, and there, there are sugar, be- sugar beet uh, fields and the sugar beet, the lorries that pick up the sugar beet are massive. They're gigantic and they, they literally break the tarmac they break wow. the road so um there was a moment um when we used to have a, bur- a burst tire and not like a spindly little sports car but tire you know like a big fat robust tire we used to just pop our tires once or twice a month and it was became ridiculously expensive and ridiculously annoying and now i have to say in my immediate local area the pothole situation is better than it was i mean but it was dire and it's now sort of a bit less dire it's not um but i i totally uh i totally um agree with james and um indirectly hugo's point about potholes being a really good metaphor i mean really it's all anybody wants isn't it to be able to get from a to b buy some food for dinner without having to go into overdraft you know know that their elderly parent who fell over in the street is going to be picked up by an ambulance and not spend two days on a gurney outside the ward etc 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 these are really kind of small basic things and potholes totally encapsulate the general kind of disarray and brokenness that it feels we're living through and jack in fairness to rishi sunak and and 10 downing street they they do know this don't they they know that they have to be seen and hence the Prime Minister's photo op pointing at that pothole, they need to be seen getting the basics right before they can even ask the public with a straight face, OK, well, maybe give the Conservatives another four or five years in power. Completely. And yeah. I think all the parties have really conned onto this before the um, before the local elections. I mean, like, you know, I'm not expected to win a uh, you know, Pulitzer Prize for this story, but I think it, was, it provoked the reaction it did 
because it really sort of cuts through to the public. You know, I've been at the Sun now for you know, two years and the main issues that keep coming up are cost of living, small boats, and then this story about the state of the nation's roads is something which, you know, obviously in Westminster, a lot of the time, as you know, we get caught up in bubble stories, whereas actually what people um, what people want to see is tangible changes to things that affect their daily lives and, uh, and potholes is one of them. Final word from you, India. Yeah, I think that's completely true. I'm very, I'm very taken with this idea of potholes metaphor. Actually, I think that's right. People just want the little things to work, and I don't really understand why Rishi Sunak is sort of presenting himself at the moment as if everything's fixed, because <laughs> it really, really, really isn't. Um, and there does, you know, he does seem to be sort of looking rather pleased with himself. Um, partly as, as a as a as a result of uh, the deal he uh, made in Northern Ireland, and that's fine. That's great. Bravo. But but nothing else, everything else is still broken. And it's like he doesn't sort of quite realise. And I think coming from a person who is themselves enormously privileged in all sorts of respects, that, that, that... It might rankle well. with people. Not everything is yeah. fixed, but one road in Darlington is. That was James, Maria and India Knight. And remember, you can read them in The Times and Sunday Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox to get yourself a subscription. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. You're listening to the Times Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. Yeah, it's time for our big thing. And this, of course, is the theme to Have I Got News For You, featuring Times Radio's very own Charlotte Ivers. After Mock the Week was cancelled last month, it becomes the last bastion of political and topical comedy on TV. That must be why they got Matt Chorley on too. 
a few months ago. Now, the UK has a long, long tradition of political satire. Spitting image, yes, Minister, the thick of it. Let's go back a little bit longer. Punch, Hazlitt, Swift. Swift was Irish, of course. But any number of great satirical writers whose craft translated onto TV very easily on sketch shows and panel shows. But one by one, they've all fallen away. How exactly did that happen? And what does it mean for public scrutiny of our politics and our culture more broadly? In just a moment, I'll be joined by the comedian Matt Ford. He's one of the writers on the new Spitting Image to talk about the future of political satire on telly. But first, John O'Farrell, that's a name many of you may recognise. He was a lead writer on the original Spitting Image and on Have I Got News For You Too. He told me why he thinks political comedy was dying and I began by asking him whether the departure of characters like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump and the return of so-called sensible politics makes writing satire harder. No, perversely, I actually think it makes it a bit better. We've got uh, politicians today that almost come pre-satirised, if you know what I mean. So the likes of Boris Johnson and Trump were sort of too extreme to parody. There's nothing you could put in their mouths that they might not have said themselves. So at least now with Rishi Sunak and uh, uh, some of the other characters in the cabinet, you can at least you know, put a distorting mirror up to them, uh, which was not possible before. It is quite hard to to make, uh, you know, comic caricatures out of people who are already weird. So, you know, back in the days when I was writing on uh, Spitting Image, um, we used to distort our politicians and make them look ridiculous. And as I say, these ones were pretty ridiculous ridiculous before you even started. And, And the John Major character... Spitting image, famously, yes. made a virtue of how boring he was. That was the joke, that he was the most boring man imaginable. One. Settle down, everyone, settle down. Now, I hope you're all happy in your new job. Yes, yes, I am absolutely thrilled, delighted. Oh, good. So uh, I am but... so pleased that you will be Prime Minister for the next five years. Thank you, Michael. Now, first of all... Can I say how absolutely thrilled I am that you're Prime Minister and my chances have been blown forever! Yes, but that was not as obvious as it looked uh, afterwards. So we made him permanently grey, and that was a mem- discussion I remember having about how do we sort of make a virtue of it. I had actually suggested some sort of special technological trick where everyone was in colour and he was in black and white. And the producer went, that's a great idea, we'll just paint him grey. And it sort of worked. And then then I noticed in the recent edition of The Crown, um, they featured John Major serving up a big portion of peas with Norma. And I thought, oh, there's a little tribute to our old spitting image sketch there that we used to do every week. Well, you mentioned every week. The way we've consumed political satire, uh, be that by the print media or the broadcast media, has changed considerably in the last 25, 30 years. Do you yes. think that makes the job of any topical comedian much harder? Because not only are people not tuning in to their telly on a Friday night as much as they used to, but every joke you can think of may have been made on Twitter in the space of two minutes. Yeah, that's really hard, I think. I'm glad I'm not writing topical comedy anymore. Um, but uh, I, my advice to young political comedians is don't look on Twitter because, yes, someone will have done that joke, but at least you'll be telling the truth when you're saying, I didn't see it. Um, there was a you know a, a period in the nineties um, and in well in the eighties and nineties when sort of political satire was incredibly fashionable. We had spitting image and alternative comedy and all those uh, 
comedy clubs springing up around the country. We just don't have that now. It's curious that in a period of extended conservative rule, there just doesn't seem to be the appetite for political satire on our screens or elsewhere. It's sadly lacking. And if you think back to the you know uh, 60s you know before either of us were sort of um, around uh, early 60s you had that was a week that was and private eye came out and then uh, you know you're a man of the left john do you think the left finds irreverence harder now or is that an unfair caricature of the modern left-wing sensibility do you think you know the rise of identity politics and increasing sensitivity means that it's harder to go for the jugular in the way it was perhaps 30 40 years ago there is a tentative sort of caution with political jokes now that people are thinking oh oh, I don't want to offend anyone I mean this has always been a problem on the left I remember Alexi Sale saying you could stand up in a comedy club and go Stalin was a bastard wasn't he and people going "Mm, I suppose the persecution of the Kulex okay I'll laugh Um, so there's always that pause where you think is this an acceptable joke to laugh at or not that's sort of a perennial problem on the left perhaps it's been made worse by identity politics Um, I think a, a laugh is a really instant and genuine reaction but as you say you know in these day in this day and age with the bbc under leadership it's under there's a great deal of wariness i imagine for young comics being labeled as a left-wing or right-wing comedian it's a it's a tough it's a t- and you know fewer and fewer commissioning opportunities as well it's a it's a tougher world out there in some ways than it was in the alternative comedy boom in the 80s i imagine i don't know if that's true i think that uh if they had a bit of courage and uh, they asserted the independence of the BBC, they could put on those shows that, you know, like the ones we had. I mean, they've sort of emerged, the best ones have emerged sort of accidentally. Things like The Last Leg, when it came along, was sort of originally a show about the Paralympics and tended to quite a strong political satirical show. I've got hopes for Joe Lycett's new show that that might um, ruffle a few feathers. Um, but I think we each generation has to reinvent how they do political satire. So... Um, when Spitting Image came back on Britbox, I thought, well, good luck to them, but I'm not sure that's quite how we want to do it now. And then when um, The Thick of It came along, I thought, well, that was a really clever way of doing political satire at that point in the time of Tony Blair and Spin and, you know, uh, uh, spads behind the scenes. So we're waiting for the next generation to show us a new way to satirise what's going on. And I, I imagine it will emerge from the bottom rather than be imposed from the top. So what you're saying is the last person anyone should listen to about this is John O'Farrell. Yes, absolutely. Old fart like me. You don't want to have some old bloke who was writing jokes in the 80s about Maggie Thatcher doing your satire. We need some um, uh, some new young voices from, you know, they don't have to be Labour Party like I am. They can. They should be sort of you know, just um, wanting to pull a few people off their pedestals like, like we did back in our day. Well, it's interesting you mentioned writing jokes about Maggie Thatcher. Of course, when you ran in Eastleigh for Labour in 2013, those jokes were dredged up and you were yes. perhaps an early target of what we would now call cancel culture. I know, that was quite something. I sort of joined Twitter in uh, 2012 and I thought, oh, it seems to me like, you know, every day there's someone who's the bad guy on Twitter and there's a five-minute hate against uh, a new character uh, online. And then the following year, it was me. It was like, oh, the five minutes hate's about me. This is quite weird to have people shouting at me from their car saying I should be hung, shot at dawn and the, that they do it. Uh, but yeah, I made um, political points about... Uh, Thatcher and uh, the IRA and the Brighton bomb and how much we hated Thatcher back then and um, my nuanced point about condemning political violence was sort of slightly taken out of context and um, so yes I was a, I was a hate figure on the Daily Mail for a day or two but that's part of the course I'm you know people who read the book people who read the book knew what I was trying to say and it, you know if you can't take a bit of flack as a subversive political satirist then maybe you're in the wrong game 
exactly. In fact, there's so much publicity that went with, with David Cameron reading out extracts from my book in the House of Commons that um, they went shooting up the Amazon charts and my publishers had to reprint. So thanks, Mail. <laughs> thanks, David. <laughs> Well, that was the writer John O'Farrell, who was one of the lead writers on the original Spitting Image TV show, among many, many others. And I'm joined now by TV critic Siobhan Sinnott. Morning, Siobhan. Morning, Patrick. Uh, is John O'Farrell right then? You were listening to that. Is political mm. satire, at least on traditional TV, mm-hmm. dead or dying? Well, I certainly think that there's just less space for comedy for all television companies now, including the BBC. Money's a big issue and they've got to balance doing old stuff, um, expensive old stuff with doing new stuff. Um, So there's less comedy entertainment being commissioned. But I think there are other issues for political humour that that John touched on. He was saying, thank goodness I'm not writing topical comedy anymore. Well, you know, one of the demands is as well as being edgy, you have to be up to the minute. Uh, And that, I think, created problems for shows like Mock the Week, spitting images in the last few years, because as news breaks and as stories move on at greater speed than ever before, a gag's shelf life has become shorter and shorter. But also there's, I think, uh, another thing, which is do audiences want political satire or do they currently crave something kinder? And you look at Cats Do Countdown or the juggernaut success of Taskmaster uh, recently and you think, well, maybe that's the case. Yeah, it's fascinating whether audience tastes are changing or, mm. and that reflects a broader cultural shift. You know, that's something I've spoken to with all the comedians I've spoken to for this item. Mm. You know, all, mm. audience tastes and expectations changing. You know, as you say, something kinder, less caustic. Um, you know, giving and taking offence is obviously fraught with a lot of cultural baggage and, you know, not inconsiderable professional risk for people these days. Yeah, yeah. I think strong political comedy comes when there's a need in fraught political times. But you also have to have um, a, a really strong, strong voice. If you if you don't really feel strong about something, then you might as well write a skit for you know Radio Four at its weakest. Um, um, I mean, take Brexit, which should represent a bonanza for comedy, you know, an inexhaustible source of hypocrisy to fuel sketch writers and columnists and voters. Um, but it became a really perilous business. You, Marcus Brigstock um, has talked about when he did anti-Brexit material that caused walkouts and you know comedians take uh, take on board the fact that if you make uh, a comment that doesn't go down with the 50 percent that disagree with you then you know it blots out your social media feed for for days um and also you know the bigger problem for comics is that brexit itself seemed to be in on the joke you know you look at jacob reese mogg um you know playing up to his cartoon etonian uh, stands so Nigel Farage and, and Boris Johnson also rather obviously reveling in you know, almost self-parodic imagery, um, and you think, well, how, 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 you you're beyond. Have I got news for you? Haven't you? Aren't you? Yeah, and politicians always want to take the sting out of it by appropriating mm. the satirist's insult. You know, every yeah. politician has the most disobliging cartoons in the downstairs toilet. Uh, you know, yeah. all of them wanted to buy their spitting image puppets back in the day. And, you know, some have, ta- as you say, have taken it to its natural conclusion by effectively doing the job of satirising themselves. Um, but let's take a look back at some of the best moments of TV political satire over the years. Uh, this is one of the few scenes from the thick of it uh, we can use on a <laughs> on a family-friendly radio show uh, 10 hours before the watershed uh, because uh, this is one that doesn't have loads of industrial strength language, but it is a classic scene. So how do we engage with this demographic? The first Great. thing is... is- 
successful knowing who we're talking about and then finding a name for them. People who would do something for nothing. Ordinary people with with something special about them. You know, like su- people as superheroes. Iron people, spider people. They're just regular things. citizens, but they have this that Most one people. special quality that makes them like Batman, or Bat people. Um, they're quiet Bat people. It's very amusing, that segment, for, 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 for someone who now covers the Labour Party closely because they, in their focus groups, are obsessed with the concept of hero voters, which is not a million miles away from quiet bat people. Uh, Siobhan Sinnott, the thick of it now feels a one-in-a-million TV show. It's never been done as well since that sort of combination of really well-observed sitcom humour and political satire. Yeah, it felt like a milestone, didn't it? Um, uh, it moved things along from the likes of Yes Minister, um, in which civil servants, you know, outmaneuver shallow opportunistic politicians, you know, who say things like, I don't want the truth, I want something I can sell Parliament. Um, this uh, was, you know, Yes Minister was about a minister and his tussle for power and change against his civil servants. Thick of it is about the political class's relationship largely with the media. It's dark, it's foul-mouthed, it's bitter, it's very funny. But at its heart, I think it also displays a pretty savvy understanding that the thick of it is like our West Wing, except in the West Wing, everyone's very, very good at their job. And in the thick of it, it's about the disconnect with the electorate. And then the politicians wonder why the electorate at that point don't really bother voting. Yeah, it's really, it is really, really interesting. And, you know, as, as, we, as we're saying, it's sort of ebbing away from TV in Britain. Uh, mm. But the States, the United States, has, still has a lot of good political satire on TV. Uh, let's listen to Alec Baldwin parodying Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live. Martha, tonight I'm going to do three things. I'm going to huff, I'm going to puff, and I'm going to blow this whole thing It's interesting, and I think it, it returns to a point you made earlier, Siobhan, what people want from televised comedy and satire. America, mm. American politics is incredibly polarised. People are divided into tribes. And, you know, perhaps it's more about reassuring individual tribes, you know, be they liberal or right-leaning in America, about that they're right and that their adversaries are, you know... Uh, 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 wrongans basically and it's interesting as well that when they want something like the thick of it they had to get Armando Iannucci to make Veep for America Mm. Uh, there there are no sort of direct equivalents I think between how America treats political satire and how the UK does I mean they had the Daily Show we had the MASH report but they're not in John Stewart um, haranguing audience is not quite the same as as Nish Kumar, and it's interesting that we don't have um, late night talk shows doing monologues in the way of Stephen Colbert's Late Show or um, Seth Meyers, um, Joe Lissette's um, Late Night Show, which has just started on Channel Four might have the makings of it, although its opener was more interested in spoofing GB News, which seems an easy target, and also something of a niche one. How many people watching Channel 4 also watch GB News, I thought. Um, but you, you, Alec Baldwin, as, as Trump on Saturday Night Live, showed that you know, American 
uh, mainstream entertainment had finally discovered some teeth. Uh, you know, Alec Baldwin played Trump throughout his presidency. It's a smartly observed character, that pouted lip that he sticks out, the way he trolled Hillary Clinton during their spoof of the candidacy debates by wandering around in the background like a shark in Jaws. And I was in the audience uh, when Stephen Colbert um, uh, was on, when Trump had just won. And, and, and it was interesting to see uh, Colbert uh, respond to something that immediate by welcoming us because he said, tonight of all nights, I don't want to be alone. Is it more fertile ground for TV satire America just because there's more money sloshing around in TV there? I think also, you know, the Trump remains the gift that keeps on giving for American satire. I mean, you know, uh, he's just been indicted over the hush money payments to uh, Stormy Daniels. And Jimmy Kimmel was on the show, his show just the other night, saying that Trump's lawyers have told him to be prepared to lose his case. And uh, Kimmel saying, well, that means he'll spend the next three years claiming he won the case. Yeah, yeah, it's really it is it is really fascinating how a lot of these big political stories in America are instantly satirised mm-hmm. in a ro- on a rolling basis, as you yeah. say, and the satires themselves become as much a part of the political narrative as the story, as the you know, it's part of political discourse in a way. It sort of very much isn't here anymore. Um, just to mm-hmm. just to finish, Savorn, you're Scottish. Yep, Scotland has an interesting position. It's effectively been, you know, one party state is probably overstating it somewhat, but the SNP have been so dominant. Nicola Sturgeon has been so dominant for the past decade. What's the satirical scene like there? Yes. I mean, since 2012, you could say that Scotland has never been more politically engaged, and yet there are very few satires on the Scottish government. You know, you might say maybe there's nothing worth satirising in in Scottish politics, although this week we are looking at the purchase of a £100,000 motorhome, which was bought with the SNP's campaign money, then parked up outside the CEO's 90-year-old mother's home, you know, which he makes, if I was a satirist, I'd be wondering what other white elephants uh, the CEO, Peter Merrill, has been buying. Crystal animals, Franklin Mint coins, Bannockburn commemorative plates, who knows? And we've also got Hamza Youssef saying that he only discovered this luxury motorhome after he replaced uh, Nicola Sturgeon's party leader, which suggests if you become a American president, they show you the Roswell files, but when you become Scottish minister, you find out about a motorhome. <laughs> they show um, they show you the SNP's accounts. <laughs> but yeah, where are the political shows? Maybe it's seen as too burdensome. Um, in Scotland, audiences I don't think really recognise the political opponents of the Scottish government, Anna Sauer, Douglas Ross, Alex Cole Hamilton, in the way that they recognise Alex Salmon, mm. uh, Nicola Sturgeon. And also the mildest jokes about Scottish government do seem to provoke outrage. There were huge complaints when Tracy Ullman on her comedy show dared to impersonate Nicola Sturgeon um, and, and, and Vary Black. So it's interesting that the fiercest satirical voice in Scotland at the moment doesn't come from television. Um, and it does come from an independence perspective. And it's on social media. Um, there's a comedian called Shawnee Boy who's been posting political skits that skewer the SNP from the perspective that they have been more focused on holding on to power than delivering an independent Scotland. And we can play just a quick clip of Shawnee Boy now. State your name for the record. I can't recall. Oh, sorry, sorry. Force of habit. Nicholas Sturgeon. So you didn't know your party had lost 50,000 members, if not more. Look, I didn't wake up every morning and check how many members were in my party. I'm not that obsessed. How many Twitter followers do you have? As of this morning, (laughs) (laughs) 1,534,345. 
<laughs> See, that is very that is very funny and very pointed, and it doesn't seem like the sort of thing that would find a, that happier home on Scottish TV, particularly um, given the SNP's dominance and control of sort of public institutions. Yeah. It'd be a brave commissioning editor who did that. Maybe it'll change. Maybe it'll change. Uh, but that's been really interesting discussing that with uh, Siobhan Sinnott, uh, the TV critic. Earlier, we heard from John O'Farrell, one of the original writers of the hugely successful Spitting Image. And indeed, have I got news for you? Well, a few years ago, they did reboot Spitting Image. And now, having lost its birth on TV, it's taken to the stage. Called Idiots Assemble, Spitting Image the Musical. It's running from 24th of May to 26th of August at the Phoenix Theatre in London. And it's written by none other than the comedians Matt Ford and Al Murray. Earlier, I managed to catch up with Matt. I began by asking him if the rumours of the death of TV satire are greatly exaggerated. No, no, I don't think they are. I mean, what is there left? You know, it's a real shame that in an era when probably a, a desire for political comedy and for satire, particularly, and not just of politicians, but of powerful people. I mean, Succession probably is the greatest satire on telly at the moment. Um and there's I've got news for you, and that's basically it. You know, and, and when you think of the period we've lived through and are living through, I, I think it's a, a real, real shame that there isn't more satire on telly. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because obviously it's been a crazy decade in politics that just seems to be calming down? Is it, you know, interesting? People are sort of fed up of politics and want less of it in their lives. Is that a part of it? No, I don't think it is. I, th- I think the public desire is overwhelming to see powerful people lampooned and um you know we've lived through extraordinary times and even anyway i think there's always room for sitcoms about government and powerful people and panel shows or topical shows or satirical desk-based sort of um the daily show type things i think people find it really cathartic i think it's highly entertaining to have really talented people taking the news apart and i don't think there's ever a point where you could say that's not a good thing i think it's particularly ironic that there's less of this stuff on telly, given that we've lived through a period where people really are desiring. So I think the public demand is absolutely there. I think it's probably greater than it's ever been. I just think now I think broadcasters are more wary of commissioning satirical um, output, and I think that's a real shame. I think it's partly because um, they're slightly scared of offending people. I mean, um, I can only speak from personal experience from yeah, this, of but... In terms of making, say, Spitting Image live, which we're currently doing for the West End, we can do that with a handbrake off. And when audiences come to see that, they their desire to see people poked fun at, lampooned, um, satirised is 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 a it, it, an almost quenchable thirst that you you know any comedy writer would struggle to keep up with. And yet that's that's not on telly. I think, and that really demonstrates that people want this stuff. But I think in the end commissioners get worried i think lawyers get worried and they don't want to get in a fight with the government and they don't want to offend people i think it's a mixture of um not wanting to uh, poke the bear and i think there is sadly a slight anxiety around reaction to things on social media and i think it uh, uh, sort of television has effectively been cowed into a position where you couldn't make something like brass eye today you talk about offense there both taking and giving it do you think it's as much a supply side problem as a demand side problem you know sound like liz trust there uh which is probably you know the the, the closest thing we're going to get to political satire on uh on the airwaves today is it a problem this sort of generation of comedians new generation of comedians do you think are warier of sounding of giving offense and going nearer the knuckle or is that an oversimplification of a generational shift 
I don't think so. I mean, you know, go to any comedy club and you'll see people doing provocative stuff, I think. I mean, equally, I don't gig that often in comedy clubs anymore, but I think that there will always be people who are pushing the envelope and have provocative and inventive takes on things. I think there is absolutely a desire on behalf of comedians to make um, topical, satirical television. There are, you know, so many people that can be making really good topical telly and um, a, a public desire. It's, it's the bit in the middle. It's it's television itself that is effectively preventing that from happening. And, you know, it's, it's part of the problem, the way we consume, right? Because people are very rarely sitting through telly shows anymore. Or, you know, for instance, Spitting Image went out on BritBox as well as on terrestrial telly. Has that changed the dynamic? I think there's definitely, I mean, I think there's a wider cultural societal problem uh, around a whole load of things where I think effectively institutions are very, very scared of what people say on Twitter. And that leads you to a place where you are effectively cowed by um, a voice that doesn't reflect public opinion, that hands power to people who want to shut down things they don't like by people they don't like. And I think that's true in broadcasting as it is in any industry. And I think organisations, institutions, charities, political parties need to be far more robust, not nasty or, or rude, but just defend the output and not worry about what people on Twitter are going to say. You know, whenever you're making something, you're, 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 you're always making it in the norms of the time in which you live. You have conversations about the tone and, and you sort of naturally, if you're creating this stuff all the time anyway you're not going out of your way to be particularly nasty so it periodic offense if you're satirizing someone like say Suella Braverman or Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer you know you're, you're going to do it in a particular way that is effectively um appropriate you might occasionally cross the line but you have to you have to be allowed to make mistakes and you have to be allowed to be provocative whether that's in journalism or in comedy or in, in, in anything else and I just think at the moment I think there is a sort of institutional weakness across the board People have become really timid. They've effectively become bullied by a load of people with anonymous Twitter accounts. And I just think you create, in the end, you just don't make anything. And you've you've handed over power to a small group of people who aren't representative of the public and aren't particularly pleasant. Uh, you've been doing this for a while now. Yeah. Have you noticed a shift in audience expectations or audience appetite in the time you've been doing it? Oh, definitely. I mean, this is the other thing to remember is, and this is why Twitter is such a distorting force, because the vast majority of people are, as they always have been, absolutely fine and can laugh at their own side, can go and see a show where someone takes the mick out the Tory party, the Labour party, and the SNP, whoever, and leave unoffended that the party they vote for was part of that mix. Um, I think there is an overwhelming public desire now for uh, topical, satirical, political comedy. I mean, I started doing it during the coalition years where it was like Nick Clegg, Ed Miliband, Farage. You know, there were a few characters knocking about, but they weren't golden days, really, to be a satirist. Whereas now, particularly on the other side of Trump and, and Boris, but then Liz Truss and everything that's happened, there's an overwhelming desire. You know, the public desire is absolutely there. You know, spitting image. We did six weeks in Birmingham. We sold 25,000 tickets in Birmingham. Now, I know Birmingham's a big place, but, like, that is incredible. Mm. Just the desire was overwhelming, and now we're transferred to the West End. You know, people are absolutely gasping for really funny, satirical, political comedy. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be on telly either. You know, all sorts of different formats. Whatever the new thick of it's going to be, whatever the new Daily Show would be, something else. And I just think uh, it's just a terrible shame that, that there's not enough on telly. 
Well, is political satire on TV dead? As the Chinese Premier Zhu Enlai allegedly said at the French Revolution, it's too soon to tell what the consequences may be. You heard then from John O'Farrell and Matt Ford, comedians and spitting image writers both, and Siobhan Sinnott, the TV critic. Now, for the last time in a while, it's time for our daily counterfactual, What If? Yes, this is my new feature, What If?, where we explore the political parallel universes we could have enjoyed or suffered have things gone a little bit differently. Today we ask, what if this had ended up happening? It is time for us to adjust to the facts. Britain's future is in Europe. And as for the euro, the conclusion of this argument is not that we go in regardless of the economic conditions. It is that if the economic tests are met, Political or constitutional barriers should not prevent us joining. Yes, what if Tony Blair had got his way and Britain had joined the euro in 2003 or a little bit later? I'm joined by the economist Stephanie Flanders to talk through what may have happened had Tony Blair won that battle. Afternoon, Stephanie. Afternoon. Uh, Remind us of the big debate Britain was having uh, 20 years ago Uh, within the new Labour government. This was a big source of division, wasn't it? Yeah, and there was certainly, I think uh, Tony Blair was one of those people who saw the political advantages of integrating more closely with Europe and felt that our future was with Europe, as you heard there, and sort of felt that the economic, uh, the monetary union joining the euro would be a means to that end. I don't think he was particularly enthusiastic about the euro itself, but he probably underestimated the risks. Um, but fortunately, I think, fortunately for for the UK, um we, uh, Gordon Brown and his advisor, Ed Balls, uh, were much more uh, worried about Britain going in, thought it would potentially be a disaster. And of course, one of the things they were thinking back to was that brief period where we had linked our exchange rate to uh, the Europeans, the, or the infamous exchange rate mechanism of mm. the early 90s. And we had blown out spectacularly. And that was one of the things that set, the, set us on the road for the, for the Labour victory in 97. But in 90. In 92, we'd had this massive currency crisis, effectively from trying a dry run of joining the euro. And they thought that was pretty definitive, that we shouldn't try and do it again. And going into the euro wouldn't just mean shared uh, banknotes and, uh, you know, a shared currency with the rest of Europe. It means a currency controlled by the European Central Bank. You know, the days of uh, the Bank of England setting interest rates would have been over. It's It's a big fiscal commitment. Yeah, and if you think about it, I mean, the totemic significance of the British passport is nothing compared to the Bank of England, the pound, all of those things. So, you know, it would have been an extraordinary uh, gamble, if you like, for, for Tony Blair to have taken us in that in that direction. And I think it would have also um, potentially been a bit of a disaster for the Eurozone. We had, if you look at countries like Greece, you remember after the global financial crisis, we had that series of crises um, in, in the Eurozone. And that was effectively, you know, countries really struggling with the fact that they no longer controlled their own monetary policy, their interest rates were being set in Frankfurt. You know, we would have had an even harder time with that. And uh, we're a much bigger economy for them to to cope with or to bail out. I don't think we would have got bailed out like Greece was. Yeah, so that, those are the economic consequences, aren't they? The, the 2008 crash in Britain, if it's a member of the Eurozone, is very different and potentially much, much messier. 
Yeah, we wouldn't have been able to adjust. You know, one of the things that we often do when the world gets difficult is we, you know, rather than sort of force everyone to take a pay cut, which is what, for example, Greece has had to do, you know, massively shrink its economy, shrink its wages to keep as competitive as Germany. Remember, that's what you have to do. If if you've got the same monetary policy, the same currency as Germany, you've got to effectively become as competitive as an economy as Germany. And we're we're nowhere close to that. we would have had. I like to think, though, that we would we would probably have had a crisis like Greece, but they wouldn't have been able to afford to bail us out. So we would have blown out of the eurozone and probably blown up the whole thing, which potentially could have been um, could have done a favour to some of the others who've struggled with the eurozone inside Europe. But that is very much a counterfactual of history. Yeah, indeed, indeed, and the politics of this are very interesting, too. You know, not only does it. Um, you know, there's a huge debate inside the Labour government of the time. So Tony Blair getting his own way probably involves him overruling Gordon Brown and all the consequences that would have had for the Labour Party. But more broadly, it would have changed the contours of the debate about Europe in Britain for a generation. Uh, and perhaps the Eurosceptic backlash we eventually got in 2016 would have come earlier. I think that's right. I think it would have it certainly would have made the argument for leaving the European Union stronger because, you know, one of the arguments, you know, I, I, I thought we should stay in the, Euro, the European Union, but I would have found that argument much harder to make if we were stuck in the Eurozone because I think that, was a, that, was the, that would have been the wrong thing for us to do. And all the disadvantages that people felt, people who were against being in the European Union, they would have been much greater. The, the limits on our room for manoeuvre as a sovereign country would have been much greater. You know, we wouldn't have had our own monetary policy, I would say, our own currency. So, yeah, potentially that groundswell could have come sooner and we could potentially have um, had a referendum sooner. Indeed. But in the event, Tony Blair lost that argument and we didn't get that referendum until 2016 and we still have pounds in our pockets. And that was I think definitely- we should say, sorry, I think that the sort of, at least the, the sort of apocryphal story is it was at the back of a cab mm. that Ed Balls and Gordon Brown cooked up these tests. Five tests, yeah. The five tests on the back of an envelope, which at least, you know, history records that that sort of saved us from going in the Euro because uh, when Tony Blair agreed to those tests, they were tests that would probably never have been met. And indeed, it was a it was a briefing from Brown's uh, press secretary Charlie Whelan in the Red Lion pub uh, in uh, in Westminster as well. Sort of uh, you know a, 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 a sort of freewheeling briefing from Charlie Whelan that also played a big role in uh, in killing that as well. So it was uh, you know it was um, you know very, very much Brown's team sort of uh, acting on the hop, but it had huge uh, huge impact on our on our history. That was The Economist and former BBC broadcaster Stephanie Flanders answering that really interesting political and economic question. What if Britain had joined the Euro and Tony Blair had got his way? Big consequences, but none as big as my departure from The Times Red Box podcast for a little while. It's been great having your company. Matt Shirley will be back on Monday. And in the meantime, make sure you like, subscribe, share and follow wherever you get your podcast from. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.